Welcome to the D-Shift Podcast, where we provide inspiration, motivation, and education to help you transition from the challenges of divorce to discover the freedom and ability to live life on your own terms. Are you ready? Let's get this shift started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the D-Shift. And today we have somebody on the podcast who is an absolute authority in her area. So I'd like to introduce you to Lisa Ziderman. She is the managing partner at Miller Ziderman in New York. She is a matrimonial attorney. She's a CFL and a certified divorce financial analyst, which is not something you always find combined with, uh, with your family and divorce attorney. And she has won numerous awards in New York for her, uh, for her legal work, for being a notable woman, notable woman attorney and a whole bunch of other awards. I mean, there's, there's a list of tons of these here, people. So I'm not going to read them all, but I just want you to know that Lisa is a real expert. So Lisa, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to having our conversation. Wonderful. And I am too, because uh, we're going to talk about something today that I hear a lot of. And I think it's frustrating probably for both men and women when they're in this situation. But I think it tends to be maybe I'm being stereotypical here, or maybe it's because I only work with women as a divorce coach. But what I do find is that a lot, a lot of financial abuse issues do occur in relationships. So can you tell us a little bit about, um, what got you into working in family law first? I always, you know, it's always interesting for people how, how people get into the careers they get into. So I was in the fashion business for many years and I had come out of high school, gone right into the fashion business and really liked doing um, that kind of work. And then I went through my own divorce. And as I went through my own divorce, I realized two things. Number one, that there was a lot that could be done to help people. And I felt that if I went back to school, um, meaning college, and got my law degree, I could do that. And number two, that a lot of what could be helped was um, really about making sure that your clients got responses. And I felt that attorneys are not always as responsive as they need to be, and that that's part of the driving force of why clients become so stressed and anxious and probably do some of the things that they shouldn't do while they're waiting for those responses. I also found the work very interesting. They work in terms of complex custody issues and valuations and, and a lot of the financial issues. So those were the reasons I decided to actually pursue this, this line of work. Wow. And it, you are absolutely so right. Uh, the biggest reason why clients come to me is because they are frustrated that they think their attorney isn't doing anything. And in fact, that maybe my clients are not as clear as what they want or what they need or their expectations for the divorce are like here and reality is here. So there's all those kind of things that come into it. So congratulate. And what, what specifically uh, drew you to go ahead and because you went through to become a certified divorce financial analyst. That's a whole, that's a whole other career on top of law. So how did that come about? Well, the finances of a divorce particularly interest me. Um, the issues surrounding retirement fund division, the issues re- 
that are surrounding restricted stock units and the division of restricted stock units and the use of the coverture formulas such as De, as De Jesus formulas and generally just the finances, which I feel like a lot of attorneys are not equipped, unfortunately, to deal with and they don't understand the finances and they go into that courtroom or they go into the negotiation table and they just don't know frankly, what they should know, unfortunately. And I think a lot of clients are disadvantaged because of that. So it was very important for me to get as much education um, under my belt so that I could help our clients. I also think that to your point, there's a lot of clients who have certain expectations about what they want in a divorce and that they need somebody who can really analyze the division of the assets because it may not always be the best thing to take for example the marital residence or and that may be because there's cap gains involved in the marital residence or you're going to end up paying the broker's fee when you figure out that you're not able to afford the marital residence there's also all of the tax issues that regard restricted stock units and the transfer of restricted stock units and and all of those things combined so i think that having that cdfa actually is really important and it, it's very helpful to the clients. Yes, and that is that is one of the things that I typically recommend, especially with my high asset clients. You know, the first thing I say to them is, are you working with a certified divorce financial planner? And if they say no, then I say, well, you know, that maybe even before an attorney, that needs to be the first person you talk to because your attorney may not understand all the tax implications of the decision. So um, that's phenomenal that you're two people in one, two professionals in one <laughs> when people come and talk to you. Do you mostly work with women or do you mostly work with men or how does that play out for your I, clients? So I really work with both. Um, it's probably about 50-50. Obviously, it depends on the month and it depends on the part of the year sure. and all of that. But but I, I really don't have a preference as to male or female or husband and wife or any of the components because I think both are interesting and I think it's important to actually to represent both um, because there are as you said, some of the stereotypical issues that come up when you're representing male versus female, but there are also the less stereotypical issues that come up. And and now with women and men out there in the workforce, we are starting to see women who are paying child support, women who are paying spousal support, women who are making more than, than their spouses. And so it's really important to keep that in mind. So no, I like representing both. I think that they both have interesting components to them. Yeah, it, it's funny. I was just talking to, I had another guest on the podcast last week who was uh, kind of analyzing where divorce trends were going. And one of, one of her premises was that uh, a lot of these high asset divorces, a, lo a lot of the increase in that is due to exactly that. The women are actually the higher breadwinners in the family. And it's it just the dynamics kind of break down the relationship when that starts to happen. So let's let's talk a little bit about what, what we were going to focus on today. And that is financial abuse. Can you talk about, kind of give a a, a very basic picture of what that what that is and why it has a factor in a divorce if it's going on sure so to me financial abuse is about control and it is an abuse because you've got control somebody has taken control of the finances and that means that someone else may not have access to the financials um, they may not have access to actual money they may they may be cut off from the knowledge and 
the documentation that actually goes to the finances. They may not see the tax returns or they may be forced to, to sign tax returns, but essentially their life is being controlled. And look, let's face it, money actually is a function of life. You need money to actually work within the world. And if your access to money is cut off, if you no longer have any control or access to the money, then you cannot move around the world. You can't, you cannot get groceries. You cannot get childcare. If you want to go out to work and you have a child, you are really inhibited. And as a result of that, you're more susceptible to financial, to physical abuse and you're more susceptible to verbal abuse because now you're trapped essentially and that is to me what financial abuse is about so while physical abuse is obviously very dangerous and verbal abuse emotionally dangerous i think that financial abuse in some ways is the most dangerous because you are left literally being held almost as a hostage you are in a situation yeah. yeah i would i would absolutely agree with that what are some of the signs or the indicators that uh, you may that a woman or a man may experience if they were kind of being victims of this financial abuse? So there are a few things that happen. I think one is that you are no longer um, able to see the finances. Maybe you never were, by the way. Okay, maybe that's just how your marriage went the entire time. And maybe you were financially abused the entire time. So just because nothing has changed, that it's always been that way, doesn't make it right. And so not having the ability to see the finances, maybe now your passwords are cut off um, or the passwords have all been changed or the information is no longer coming to the marital residence or to your email address. And so instead, it's been rerouted to another, you know, your your spouse's email address or your spouse's office or his parents' house, or her parents' house, or whatever it case may be, right? Um, you no longer have access to the credit cards, or your limit has been cut so substantially that it is worthless, essentially, yeah. because you can no longer actually buy things that you used to be able to actually purchase for yourself, for your children. Um, perhaps you are being given tax returns to sign, but all the parts of the tax return are not actually there, or you're being told that sign it or else or it's none of your business what the tax returns actually say, or you're not actually getting a full explanation from the accountant who actually has a fiduciary duty to you if you're filing joint tax returns, but for whatever reason, the accountant is now somehow, um, I guess, been made susceptible to all of the pressure by your spouse as well and is no longer communicating with you or answering your questions. And so tax returns are being filed on your behalf without your permission. All of those are telltale signs of financial abuse. Okay. And and I think that's a really big indicator, what you said, or a, a really big factor to consider is just because that's the way that you agree to it, you know, the day after you got married or while you were living together that he or she was going to handle the finances. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't be able to come like five years later and say, oh, hey, I'd like to look at the the, the family books. Let's see them. And it, it's interesting when you talked about diverting, um, you know, statements and things to work. I know of two clients that found out about accounts that they never knew existed because of COVID, because the office mail got bundled up and rerouted back to the house. All of a sudden, all these bills for credit cards they didn't know existed and bank accounts. Um, Lisa, what about crypto wallets? How does that how does that play in? 
Well, it obviously makes it much more complex because it's very hard um, and difficult to follow cryptocurrency and the purchase of it. I mean, look, we have tracked cryptocurrency and we have worked with experts to track the cryptocurrency purchases. And we have found, frankly, millions of dollars at times with because purchases have been made and somebody didn't know about it. Um, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you may have this huge appreciation of cryptocurrency and you weren't even aware that it was being bought. There was maybe some telltale signs in the bank statements, but you didn't know why the withdrawals were being made or the transfers were being made. And so you weren't keeping track of it. So I think it's one more element of something that somebody needs to be tracking. Look, I think that making sure that you have control of your finances finances and understanding what those finances are is really important. And cryptocurrency makes it even harder sometimes, particularly for a, you know, a lay person sure. um, to actually know what the finances are. Um, you know, I was just working in a case and we found literally um, millions of dollars in cryptocurrency. But I think that beyond cryptocurrency, you know, years ago, I had a case and I'll never forget it. Um, the wife had really been cut off from the finances and she used to um, go through the garbage, literally looking for these telltale signs of what there could be. Right. Because her husband would you know, throw stuff in the garbage and and she would find it and she saved up all these little pieces of paper. And when we were doing the discovery, he handed almost nothing over. And but I had these little pieces of paper like breadcrumbs that we were tracking and found, you know, monies that were held in an escrow account on islands that, you know, were offshore, um, all of those kinds of things that you think are not really happening. They were happening. Right. And I remember doing his deposition and during his deposition, I basically said, nothing's on your net worth statement. How would you think that I would actually be able to locate all the assets? And he said, you'll just keep doing what you're doing. You'll just keep looking for them. And sure enough, we did keep looking for them. And we did find many, many millions of dollars. And that's not to say that there probably weren't many more millions of dollars that I never found, right? right. But at some point, the court precluded him from putting in any more evidence again. And, and there was a favorable inference to her. And she ended up getting something like 65% of the assets instead of the 50% of the assets because he was not disclosing. They were so, estimating, right, for what might be out there. Yeah, exactly. And that's essentially what, what the court ended up doing. And again, I'm sure that there were always things to be found. And there, it, it's impossible if somebody is going to be hiding something, it's likely impossible you're going to find every single dollar. And at some point, you have to say, well, is it worth it to keep looking, right? But she was realistic. And, and she knew that she had enough by the time we had gone through it. Um, but it was not through help through his help at all. It was not through his help at all. Right. So when something like that happens, and and I hope I'm not putting you on the spot. I know I know you can only speak for what you know. You you practice law in New York, so that may not yes. be the same as everybody listening in on the podcast. But let's say somebody is caught lying in on a deposition. I believe is the same as a sworn testimony, right? So let's say let's say the guy does make that blatant statement. Well, I'm just not telling you where this is, and is there any legal recourse for the other partner at that point in time when those kind of statements are made? Sure. So we did actually use those statements. And of course, they were the subject of many motion papers and they carried us through, um, as did his net worth statement, which was sworn to and did not actually delineate the assets. And at the end of the day, she was awarded, you know, close to 100 percent of her counsel fees. 
that had to come out of his share, 65% of the assets, expert fees. I mean, all of those kinds of things. So he didn't help himself. I mean, look, maybe he did because maybe there was so much more that we never discovered, right? Sure, sure. Certainly, we discovered much more than he would have liked us to discover. And I think that this goes back to the issue of financial abuse, which is that you need to pay attention. Okay. And if you're in a situation where somebody is not giving you that information, you need to speak up. And if you're fearful because you are afraid of being physically assaulted, if you speak up or emotionally abused, then you need to do something different. You need to find an attorney, find a therapist, find somebody who's going to help you get out of that situation. Um, I often think about a Netflix show that um, I watched actually, and you might be familiar with it called Made. And Made is... Um, a true story. And it was about a woman who actually um, was being physically abused, was being emotionally abused, but mostly she was being financially abused. And at some point during the show, she did not have enough money to literally get daycare so that she could go out to work. Right. And it was the, it, it, it was exemplary of being financially abused. And we see Women of all walks of life and men of all walks of life, meaning there could be millions of dollars or there could be very little. But financial abuse comes at all levels. Financial abuse even comes to the working person. The person who is actually the breadwinner of the family is sometimes financially abused. And so when they have to hand over their money to the other other, um, you know, party who's not working and that's what's being required of them and they do it because they just don't want to be abused in some other manner. That's financial abuse. And then they're given some sort of an allowance that maybe just gets them to work and they have to ask for permission to to actually utilize their own money. So it, it, it actually happens to so many people. And I think. Many people who actually are the breadwinners, it's so embarrassing for them to be actually abused in that way. But they should understand that they shouldn't be embarrassed because it is very, very common to be the breadwinner and be in that situation, believe it or not. And I want to stress to something that you just mentioned, Lisa, that I think is really important. Yes, sometimes there are millions and big, you know, things on islands and, you know, separate properties in different countries. But sometimes it's people that that really don't have very much money and they're, you know, every penny counts for these people, especially if you're going to be um, taking on the role of caring for children. Um, you know, like you say, there's, there's a lot of extra cost to dealing with kids. So if somebody is hiding, you know, a couple hundred dollars a week and not declaring that, that is money that is not coming to you and your children um, that you need to have to support it. So it doesn't have to be millions and billions. It can just be like us regular people that are just getting by. You know what I mean? Uh, so. That's a hundred percent correct. You know, I'm on the board actually of an organization called Savvy Ladies, which is a not-for-profit. And it's an organization that is geared towards women's financial literacy. And it is geared to empower women actually so that they become more in, in, Um, informed about their finances and there is a helpline for example where they can ask questions and be paired with a financial professional on a one-to-one basis to answer their financial questions and so that's a resource that women can use specifically um, if they actually are in that situation because to your point there are women who literally cannot get to the grocery store because they don't have the money to buy the gasoline 
Yeah. And so, and, and look, women, uh, those women come to us and, and it is so sad. And we send them to some of these organizations like Savvy Ladies to get help or to be referred to other places to get help. But it is a very common situation. And you're right. It, it is, it, it, the enormity of it is much more than people actually think. So if you are in a situation, um, let's say I was going through a divorce and I don't have access to funds because the first thing the attorneys ask you is get, get me all your financial statements, bring them all. Let's say you don't have that or the inf- you have very limited information. You go to your attorney and you say to your attorney, I know there's other accounts. I just don't know where they are. What kind of reaction should you expect from your attorney and and what and are there any red flags when you're and I'm not asking you to specifically, you know, talk about any perhaps incorrect activities by attorneys, but are there any red flags that as a woman or a man who's in this financial abuse situation that when you're talking to your attorney, if they are if they're responding in weird ways that you should probably go on down the road and find another attorney? So, look, I, I don't think that um, attorneys should be preaching to their clients. Okay. I, I, I think that it's important that the attorney understand what is happening and that you feel that you have a relationship with this attorney that you can work as a team. Okay. Because this is your life. On the other hand, if your attorney is asking questions, well, you know, other tax returns that you can get your hold of, or is there an accountant that you can call? Or do you have any idea what you're spending on your groceries? Because there's going to be some information that you likely have. You also should understand that these are normal questions that the attorney should be asking you. And I think that at some point you will be expected to do certain things like fill out a statement of net worth, which makes everybody like tear their hair out, right? Because um, they just, you may not know all the information. And you can say that honestly to the attorney, I don't know the information. What your attorney should not do is have you make up information that you don't know. So we always have like that TBD to be determined if you don't know the information, right? Um, We might actually say, Go through everything that you can find in the house and put it together and and get us any financial documents whatsoever that you can you can find. You have to be a little bit of a detective also in your in your situation. So you have to be careful of your safety. You have to be honest with your attorney and your attorney should be actually giving advice in terms of how to get to that next step. So if you don't have the documentation and you don't have the information, your attorney should be telling you at that consultation, well, what's the solution to this? How are you going to be able to move along without that information? There shouldn't just be, you know, this this wide-eyed gaze essentially, right? Like, you know, oh my God, it should right. be, well, this is what we're going to do or we can't help you. Okay, but your attorney should be forthright about it. And I think the other thing that's important is that you're not going to your attorney to hear what you want to hear. Yes. You need to have an attorney who tells it like it is. So I think that people come to me, frankly, not because they they hear what they want to hear, because many times they don't, frankly, hear what they want to hear. But they come to me because they're getting an honest view of how I think it's going to end up or how I think we should proceed or you know what the expectation should be, what the downside, what the upside, all of those things. And then they have to ultimately make a decision. The client has to feel that they can make the decision as to how they want to proceed. Right. 
Right. Well, thank you. I think that really helps a lot. And I, I know we're just about out of time, but one other question that I, I'm hoping you could maybe just even touch on just a little bit. What about coming up with a, if you are in a financial abuse situation where you don't have access to funds and an attorney is asking for, I'm making this number up, a $5,000 retainer and you don't have access to those funds. I mean, is there, is there some workaround with that or is that just what it is? I think it's going to depend, frankly, on the attorney. I, I think it's going to depend upon the attorney. Look, you know, we, we work within a retainer. Okay. And um, we probably wouldn't be that attorney who is going to be able to um, have a workaround. That's really not, we, we, we are super prepared. We do, I think, very good work. Um, we, we make sure that we cross all the T's and dot all the I's. Um, what we will do is probably refer you to other attorneys that maybe would have that workaround type of situation. And there are attorneys who will be willing to do that, um, to make an application to the court, to do all of those things. Sometimes if, if, if you have an understanding of the finances and we know that the finances are actually out there, then we, we will maybe jump in. But I think for the most part, if you're in that situation, you need to start to look for sources that you can borrow from. So it may be family members and maybe you have to actually start to be straight about your situation with family members because you may need to be taking loans. Yeah. Um, maybe a good friend, okay? Somebody that you you know can be straight with. You may need to go to um, a not-for-profit um, organization where they can help you. You may need to go to the courthouse where they have pro bono type of help or a bar association where they can do that. So I, I think it really depends upon on the situation um, and you know we 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 refer people to those types of, of agencies etc if if they cannot afford our services but I think that you need to start to have a plan yeah. and I think that if you think that you're in that situation you be, should be starting to have a plan and you need to come to the reality of your situation and understand you need to start making a plan yeah. And, and I really appreciate that, um, you know, that advice about reaching out to friends and family. I know it's embarrassing. I know sometimes it's hard to do this, but what's the alternative? I mean, because, you know, you, you, you have to, you have to pay for services. I mean, that's the way the world works unless you can, unless you qualify for some of these, um, you know, uh, uh agencies that, that can help out. So Lisa, right. we've covered like a lot of information and thank you for, thank you for really breaking this down into very easy to understand, uh, terms and language and, um, stories so that people can understand what this looks like. What do you think is the most important thing, uh, out of this conversation that you'd like everybody to remember? So I, I think the most important thing is that you need to stand in the truth of what your situation is. And if you are being abused, you need to step back. And I know that's really hard, but you need to step back and think about what is happening around you and not just allow this to go on and on. And I think that, look, I've seen a lot of people who go in and out. They start a divorce. They stop the divorce. They get scared, right? All of those things happen. And I think if you're living that situation of abuse, that the sooner you get out, the sooner you can start to plan for your life and take control of your life. And whether that means, again, you know, speaking to a friend, speaking to a family member, getting some sort of support system together so that you can actually move forward in, in strength. I think that's really important. Yeah. 
Thank you for that. Lisa, if people want to get to know more about what you do, uh, maybe work with you if they're in the New York area, what, what is the best way to reach out to you? So they can definitely reach out to me on my website, which is lisaziderman.com. I have a blog there and I've written a lot of articles um, and there's a lot of information there. So it's lisaziderman.com. Um, they could reach me by phone, um, which is 914-455-1000. They can email, which is lz at mzw-law.com. Thank you for all that information. And really, this has been a really enlightening uh, conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I'd like to thank everybody for listening in to this episode of The D-Shift. And don't forget to tune in again next week. Thanks for listening and supporting The D-Shift Podcast. If you would like to attend live trainings by our amazing guests and have a chance to ask questions and get answers from our experts, join The D-Shift Crew. For more details and to sign up, head on over to www.divorcecoachforwomen and click on the podcast page.